Welcome to Theatre Unwrapped, the New Wolsey Theatre podcast. I'm your host, Sue Lawther-Brown, and I'd love you to join me right here in Dressing Room 3 as I unwrap the secrets and stories of theatre. This episode is part two of my exploration into making theatre accessible and inclusive for everyone. In part one, I spoke to Sarah Holmes and Michelle Taylor about the responsibilities of leaders and funders in the theatre sector. In this episode, I take a deeper dive into what access and inclusion really look and feel like at the creative end of theatre making. First up is Amy Leach. Amy is Associate Director at Leeds Playhouse and is the director of an extraordinary new adaptation of Oliver Twist by Bryony Lavery for Leeds Playhouse and Ramps on the Moon. Amy's learning curve was pretty steep. Now I can't really think about making work without thinking about access. And she worked closely with my second guest, Ben Wilson, to realise this groundbreaking project. You know, we are excluded from 99% of all theatre and film and television and music and drama and, and, art, and arts and all of these things. So why was the learning curve so steep? Oliver Twist features an integrated company of deaf and disabled artists, integrated creative sign language, audio description and captioning at all performances and it's an extraordinary piece of mainstream theatre. Amy, a very warm welcome to Dressing Room 3. Oh, thank you so much, So Nice to be here. Well, Amy, first up, let's talk about Oliver Twist because it's available right now online, isn't it? And it's rather special. When the show originally opened in March 2020, Adam Bruce from What's On Stage said, not only is it a fully integrated and accessible production, it's also a harmonious and exciting piece of theatre that breathes new life into Dickens' masterpiece. Packed to the brim with stunning performances and groundbreaking design concepts, it is an unmissable, extraordinary production. You must have been thrilled with a review like that, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's very lovely. It's always very lovely, of course, to get really nice reviews and and that side of things. But um, I suppose like two things connected to that, really. One is that I think Ramps on the Moon over time has really noticed a shift actually in the way that the Ramps on the Moon productions have been reviewed, um, which I think maybe in the early days were maybe slightly more patronising in tone, like, oh, didn't they do well? And actually, I think that's really shifted in the industry, which is fab to see. There's a lot more critics who've got a better kind of understanding of what they're watching, but also kind of really treating it as any other piece of theatre and, um, you know, judging it on its merit as a piece of theatre as opposed to like, you know, isn't it great that it's... It's also kind of thinking about these other things. So that's been really nice to kind of have so many lovely reviews that really kind of got it. Um, But I think for us as a company, the reviews that mean the most to us are the kind of audience responses. And that's been just amazing to see. Um, And particularly deaf and disabled audiences to kind of have so many lovely comments of people just feeling really seen and represented and and thought of in this process um, has just been fantastic. So really, those are the ones that matter, I think. They're the ones that really count, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so what do you think is extraordinary about the show? I mean, it's quite difficult to say about your own work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I, what I would say is that this show is is the effort, the kind of culmination of effort from such a huge number of people, so many people's thoughts and ideas 
and effort and commitment went into making this production. And I think in a way, that's one of the things that makes it really extraordinary is that team effort about the kind of collaboration that absolutely everybody was working towards this same goal of creating a piece of theatre that was both as exciting and exhilarating and as visceral as you want any piece of theatre to be, but also was doing so much in terms of moving the conversation forwards on in terms of disability. So I think that's what one of the things that makes it extraordinary. I think it's just also a hope. I hope it's just a really cracking version of Oliver Twist. And I think one of the things I love about it is that by looking at the play through or the story through this kind of, I suppose, new lens of having deaf and disabled characters in the world, thinking about deaf and disabled history in this world, thinking about access, I think it's brought a new angle, a new lens to that story. So these stories we think we know and we all think we know Oliver Twist. It's, you know, it's part of our kind of cultural landscape. Yes. But actually, I think it's made us see it afresh. And, um, and that's really exciting because that's the creative possibility of, of all of this work is it's like it's not just about patting yourself on the back and isn't it a good thing to do but actually it's about how does it make the work better how does it make us see stories in a new light so that's what I love about it let's unpick some of the detail Amy it it's so easy to say the words access and inclusion but it's quite another thing to make that a reality so tell me about the captioning and the British sign language and the audio description they're integrated into the staging and performance, aren't they? So yeah. can you explain what that means for the audience? One of the things I think is to sometimes when we talk about access inclusion, I think what we try to do a lot through the process of this production was just think about visual storytelling and aural storytelling. If when a person comes to um, experience a play, they're experiencing it through all of their senses. And for those of us who can see and hear, we are um, often seeing a visual story being told as well as an aural story being told. And of course, if those um, senses aren't accessible for you, then actually that kind of the visual world needs to be more heightened and the um, or the you know, the aural world needs to be more heightened. So I think what it means in terms of this actual show is that what we've done is try to be as kind of bold and as kind of... Uh, kind of exciting with all of the senses as we can possibly be and that's meant that what we have done is all the way through is each scene think about um, from all of those different angles how can we use audio description and captioning and sign language in ways that enhance the story turn up the dial on all of those kind of aspects of how an audience might receive those stories and so we do it in really different ways all the way through and and so for example in terms of sign language sometimes what we're using is just really bold gesture sometimes what we're using is sign supported English sometimes we're using visual vernacular it's like it changes as we go through the piece sometimes there's just it's mime it's it's just pure um, visual storytelling and the same with the audio description um, often most of the time audio description is something that a blind or visually impaired audience get received through headsets so it's not part of the actual piece itself yeah. what's I suppose one of the special things about um, this production is that the audio description is absolutely just part of the world of the play so you don't have to wear a headset to um, watch it if you're blind and, um, and and again that manifests in different ways sometimes it's, it's through the narration of the ensemble Sometimes it's through the sound design. Sometimes it's because characters are wearing elements of their costume that make sound. Sometimes it's about kind of um, somebody vocalising how they're feeling or, you know, adding an extra noise or expression to how they're responding to something. Um, and so it's and when all of that adds together, it makes it accessible for either a, a deaf or a blind audience. So, yeah, um, but really it's, it's all just more kind of ways to tell stories, really. So the accessibility is really 
built in to the DNA of yes. the piece of work, isn't it? It's, it's not that you've got a, a sign language interpreter on the side of the stage no, in a spotlight. No. It's very a very different experience by the side Definitely. of it. It's really kind of, I suppose, what it hopefully feels like, um, although that took quite a lot of work, was it feels very organic. And like I say, it's very much the fabric of the piece. And that's also partly because it was part of the creative thought process from the very beginning. So when we commissioned Bryony to write this adaptation of Oliver Twist, that was part of the parameters that it needed, the whole thing needed to be accessible in those ways. And so from the very word go, from the very first moment, moments um, that we even began to think about the play we were thinking about it on all of those levels and therefore in the same way that you might think about well how is a movement director going to work through this piece or how does the fight language of this show it just becomes another layer like that so yeah it's really exciting so tell me more what that all meant for you as a director how did you approach thinking about that from the very start well like I say like the the kind of very seeds of the commission and the development of this piece um, had all of this as part of it. And um, that involved, we did um, a big R&D before Bryony started writing, where we looked at moments from the story and we kind of explored with a, a range of deaf and disabled people, kind of how we might start to bring the story to life and using those kind of access tools to kind of become creative elements. That also then impacted on the actual story in that we were talking about it being in the Victorian era and what does that mean in terms of deaf history for example there was a, a really significant moment in deaf history that happened in 1880 the Milan conference kind of finding out more about that bit of deaf history really impacted on the choice around which of the characters might be deaf characters how that might impact on their lives and and the way that they are able to live their lives and their views and their outlook on the world um so very much kind of organically from the start it was part of it all and, and I suppose I, I you know I've used this phrase a lot when people have asked me about this show but for me as a director what it's meant is I feel like my toolkit my paint box is like it's like I had this paint box and I've just found a whole nother layer of paints that I didn't know <laughs> hidden underneath. I'm like, oh my goodness, look at all these colours I can use. Um, so that that's how it feels to me. Really, it, it, what it's meant for me is it's pushed me as a director, but it's also really um, just opened up such new and interesting creative possibilities, which is like thrilling. I can hear that in your voice, actually, when you're talking <laughs> about it. And of course, Oliver Twist has a cast that includes yeah. disabled actors. So yeah. how different was the rehearsal process, if it was different? Mm. Um, did, did you have to make adjustments? Part of rehearsals is always, as a director, kind of working out how all those individuals in a room, how they work best, what they need to do their best work, and then supporting them in that. And of course, when there's a number of deaf and disabled people in the room, they have kind of maybe more obvious access requirements, I suppose, within that. So we did make adjustments. We had, for example, because we had six deaf actors in the company, um, we it's very difficult to sign and hold a script at the same time. So we put mm. a television screen in the room that had a PowerPoint of all the tech what was so interesting about that though and I think what we you often find when you kind of um, support somebody in, in an access requirement it can actually impact and benefit lots more people so actually what was really interesting is the, the non-deaf people in the room um, going oh this is brilliant I, I don't have to hold my script I can I can act you know I can, I'm yeah. freed up actually so we did make obviously ad adjustments like that kind of things like the, the TV screen or you know printing scripts on different coloured paper and things like that but I think those are all adjustments that obviously we would make for working with any deaf or disabled person in a space but I think one of the really key things was actually about um, at the very beginning was asking everybody what do they need to do their best work and what mm. is useful
useful for each of us to know about each other to do our best work and that is less focused on like you know this sense of like what is wrong with you or what do, what do we need to you know but actually mm. about like well we actually we're all just humans that want to do our best work so how can we make that possible and also equalizing that experience so asking everybody so it wasn't all like let's all sit and look at the deaf and disabled people and ask them but actually we've all got our access requirements um and the things that would be useful for people to know about us so that's kind of really trying to equalize the experience of both being able to ask for what you need but also know that you can be supported and, and all of us taking responsibility for each other to look after each other in the process I suppose so yeah I would love somebody to ask me what I need in order to do my best work (laughs) who wouldn't who wouldn't want that that's a benefit to everybody isn't it I think so and again it frames it around doing good it frames it around the work you know doesn't it rather than and and again that's in the end we're here to make a great piece of theatre you know um Mm. and and so actually if if it's framed around how do you do your best work that feels like it's just focused on the work and actually it's just what you need to know about to do the best work that's it Um, yeah and so yeah um, it's and and what was really interesting actually was that with some of the non-disabled people in the room who have never been asked their access requirements before they've never been asked those questions you know and they luckily I gave them a bit of a heads up um, to kind of think about it overnight but you know I think they found that quite a profound thing like you say to be asked for the first time what do you need um what would be useful for us to know about you um and so uh, yeah um it it was a it was a kind of a really special thing to have done actually and it's something that I now do as standard in kind of all of the room the rehearsal rooms that I'm in is ask those questions yeah Mm. and the production was able to employ disabled people as cast but also as creatives involved in the production behind the scenes is that right that is right yeah yeah so there was kind of representation on and off stage and that just feels really important that that there was a real diversity of thought and experience and skills that could then be brought to the table to make sure that yeah the production was kind of embodying its ethos on 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 and off stage yeah yeah and was there ever a point when you thought it wouldn't be possible to achieve <laughs> all that you wanted for this show? I mean, every day, many times a day. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's worth saying that attempting to put all of those access elements into a production, all live within the production, with the level of creativity that we wanted to do with them all, <laughs> is a massive task. It's massive. It's huge mm. and hard work and a, a kind of minute-by-minute challenge. And so, yes, there were many times when, you know, maybe I wouldn't necessarily let on to anybody else, but um, <laughs> where you're like, thinking, oh, my goodness, because also that all of that stuff takes time. Working in two languages takes time. Translating mm. things takes time. You know, thinking about a scene that's entirely in BSL and working out how on earth you make that accessible to a blind audience takes detail and time. And sometimes you get caught in these access loops where, you know, you'd have solved it for, say, a deaf audience. And then you'd be like, but hang on, now we need to solve it for a blind audience. But now we're back to needing do we now need to then interpret that for a, you know, you just kind of yeah. go round and round in circles um so yeah every day um it felt kind of we were trying to do something quite we, yeah it was a massive mountain <laughs> to climb I suppose but in the end I suppose there was always a summit and you know you have to accept that 
even now having even got you know obviously we've been able to revisit the show um and add more detail in and it was amazing to get that opportunity to kind of you know improve what we've done but I think we could probably work on it for a year and still be finding ways to make it more accessible and and more that we could find within the process but at some point you just have to go okay it's open now we've done it (laughs) (laughs) well it sounds like it sounds like it was a huge learning curve directing Oliver Twist and yeah and I I wonder if you can sort of just paint a little picture of of how steep that learning curve was and and within that were there any aha moments um I think you're right about that it could have been I mean it was a steep learning curve I think it could have been steeper if one thing I was quite aware of was how steep that learning curve was going to be and so what I tried to do was before doing Oliver Twist was to kind of start practicing elements and and starting to experience elements of the show but not all at the same time. So actually my practice has kind of changed quite dramatically over a number of shows leading up to Oliver Twist and beyond it actually, um, where I started. So I've done, you know, two, kind of three or four shows I think now with um, integrated audio description in different forms and different ways of trying that. And I've also done uh, another couple of shows with integrated BSL again in different ways. So kind of had started practicing. Um, and I think that was good because it meant that, the the steep trajectory wasn't quite as steep as it could have been otherwise because it is a lot yeah. to take on and a lot to, yeah to get your head around and and of course I, in a way there weren't any aha moments because almost again minute to minute every day we were learning new things every single day um, and everybody was that's one of the glorious things about um all of this work is is also seeing other people go on those journeys and you know seeing for example some of the deaf actors who are really experienced in, in loads of accessible work but have never actually had to put audio description live into a show so that you know they're super mm. experienced but they're going on that journey it's been lovely to see some of the um actors who had no experience of bsl kind of basically start to be able to um, communicate in sign language through the course of the production and actually then in the kind of pandemic gap that we had in it go off and then start to actually officially learn BSL so you know we've all been on these amazing journeys and obviously we as an organization at the Playhouse um, at Leeds Playhouse have also been on a collective journey through the process of working up to this and and then doing this show as well and that's about so many times you just so many small changes and small details so no bigger harm moments because it's just a constant constant ever-evolving journey of learning that you know we're still on and a really bonding experience as well I would mm. imagine um, yes because you know when you're learning anything you are by the very nature of learning out of your comfort zone aren't yes. you and so to do Definitely. that do that with other people be in that outside your comfort zone space with people in the creation of, of a piece of theatre must be an incredible experience for for you all to to share definitely there's a real sense of a family of this show they all call themselves the twisters which is very sweet (laughs) (laughs) and um and and I think that was when when the production had to be paused for the pandemic um I mean the heartbreak of that company because of everything you've just said really and Mm. and you know that people were desperate to share the work we've done and the learning and and not to say that we've got it perfect but actually to kind of inspire and provoke thought in in other theatre makers and to share it with audiences and stuff so um I think we felt hugely lucky to be able to return to it and to kind of to be able to film it so that more people can see it but yeah it's a real family there's a lot so I've never known a company look after each other 
And considering how hard it was, I don't think we ever had a moment where somebody got cross or somebody lost their temper or... I mean, it right. was just, um, when you think how many weeks we spent together doing really difficult work, that's quite an extraordinary thing, I think. And I think you're right, it's because of that collective leaping into the unknown and needing to support each other on that journey. And sometimes language can be a barrier mm. when discussing yeah. disability and inclusion and the fear of, of getting it wrong. And yeah. so d- did you kind of notice that fear of getting it wrong uh, in yourself and colleagues and, and language being being a tricky thing sometimes yes we actually tried to kind of address that immediately at the start of the first block of rehearsals in that we did a big activity as a team which was looking at language and um and actually this fantastic kind of uh, task that um a brilliant woman called Vicky Aykroyd who's amazing and works with totally inclusive people she provided this brilliant task and it was just kind of lots of of like words connected to disability um, on little pieces of paper and we had to kind of in teams sort them out basically and work out you know what felt appropriate language what didn't feel at all appropriate and what weren't we sure about and it wasn't a case of like getting it right or wrong because of course language ever evolves and ever shifts and Mm. some language people feel comfortable with and, and others it doesn't but actually that the process of doing that was really about creating a space where people could raise if they didn't feel comfortable with the language that was being used or and could actually really get their brains in gear about it and take away some of that fear that actually a maybe within those discussions maybe this language is is maybe better to use than others but also to kind of just create an environment of of safe failure I suppose where actually like you know if you do say something and somebody doesn't like it it's okay they'll just point it out but it's not that you've done something wrong so I think that was a really good thing just to address it head on straight away and so in a way I don't think we um had a, a an issue with it at all through the process actually which is but I think it yeah just really getting in there early doors I think helped massively and you you met, you sort of touched on this a little bit earlier but I, I'd like to know a bit more about how this experience changed your practice as a mm. director and I think you said you've done work before and since but just tell yeah. us about a bit more about that I mean <sighs> One of the, I, I don't know. I think one of the things that attracts people to being directors is because we're we're excited. Oh, theatre makers generally, theatre artists, is that you're kind of trying to do the impossible all the time. How do I put an entire war on stage? How do I make that character fly? How do I transport that audience to that place? You know, at that time. So that's kind of one of the joyful things. It's one of the scary things, but also one of the joyful things about being a director is is trying to do the impossible and for me what I've loved about this is that you know it's again it's another set of creative challenges to try and figure out like and 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 you know if we truly think that work should be accessible and inclusive of everybody well how do we actually practically crack on and do that and make it a creative thing rather than like we said before that kind of add-on so um yeah it has changed my practice and I think in a way it's become quite addictive because now I just can't I suppose it's shifted my head I can't think of a show without thinking what might be the kind of creative access layers in this and you know who might these characters be and and if they're a disabled character or a deaf character what does that mean for the story and you know really kind of you know and and some of that is just because like on a really basic level well I've got friends who are deaf and disabled (laughs) and I want them to be able to come and see the work Um, and of course (laughs) you know I've got more deaf and disabled friends since doing this work and that grows daily because of it so actually I want them to be able to come and see the work that I make um so it's become kind of like a personal need I suppose as well but yeah now I can't really think about making work without thinking about access um 
yeah and and I'm wondering what else can we try what else can we um find and discover which is really exciting yeah. it sounds as if this has really enriched your practice and totally yeah and and I so I wonder why do you think more productions more directors don't embed access in the way that you have with Oliver Twist is it is it money is it time is it habit or or something else perhaps I think it's so many different things and I think time and money are definitely part of it and they can be real barriers to being able to do the work but not always I think there are kind of creative solutions to to kind of the the money and time side of things but I think we're not used to it I think is one thing it's not been around for very like you know obviously it has there's been amazing you know gray eyes of this world who have done this work for donkey's years brilliantly but I think there's maybe been that sense of like that people haven't just had it in their consciousness to do it and and but importantly to think of it as a creative tool and and that's I think where this real shift has to happen it's kind of shifting away from this notion that it's something that you add on you know, and and that is a pain in some way to add on for whatever reason. But actually thinking about it as a true creative layer. So in some ways, in the way that maybe like 10 years ago, we weren't, we there weren't loads of, say, movement directors in the industry. And now it's like, well, pretty much every show has a movement director. Well, hopefully as this builds, it'll just become standard that there are access consultants and access directors as part of shows, you know, and that yeah. That just becomes standard. What I have really noticed is how many people have reached out, directors, theatre makers, to talk to me about the process of Oliver Twist since making it. Um, and particularly kind of the young generation are kind of hungry and really alive to this. So I think that's quite interesting. I think there is a massive shift happening. Um, what I'm always trying quite consciously to say is like, but also please talk to deaf and disabled people about this because I don't identify as deaf and disabled myself. Um, so I can obviously kind of say so much, but it's really important that deaf and disabled voice is a part of that creative process. I yeah. don't know whether it's kind of, yeah, yeah. I, th- I just think it's really important that deaf and disabled voices are kind of at the heart of all of these processes. And this production of Oliver Twist stands out for two reasons. Firstly, because of the inclusion of disabled people, not only as audiences, but in the creative making process, as as we've just been talking about. And secondly, it stands out because it's an incredibly powerful, beautifully crafted piece of theatre. And I guess that what we might hope for in a truly inclusive future is that a production like Oliver Twist won't stand out for the first reason. It would only stand out for the second reason because it's just simply wonderful theatre. How far away do you think we are from that becoming a reality? Oh, crikey, what a question. I mean... um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sorry I mean, Amy <laughs> yeah I mean obviously yeah I totally hope that that's that second reason that it stands out if it stands out it's hard for me to say that um but um that that should be the only focus you know but how far we are from that being the reality across the industry I fear quite away still, but I, I kind of, I, I'm quite a hopeful, optimistic person. So it's like pains <laughs> me to say that, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I don't know, really. I think it's a really difficult question to to answer. But like I say, one of the things that gives me real hope is the number of earlier career artists in particular that are so switched on and so desperate to make their work accessible, you know, and, and, and that is brilliant because I think, and, 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 you know, just the kind of the growing conversations, the the more shows that are out there, even just, you know, you kind of flick through Twitter and 
so many more shows now with kind of integrated um, access elements and working with deaf and disabled artists. So it really is shifting. Um, and so, you know, hopefully that that um, ideal of the future will come around soon. <laughs> yeah, I I hope so too. And, uh, and clearly, clearly things are moving in the right direction. It would just Definitely. be great to accelerate it, wouldn't it? So that it, yeah. it happens happens fast and so I wonder what what's your next project Amy what are you what are you up to now well I've got um a couple of things on the horizon one is a big show um at the start of next year which isn't yet announced so I probably can't say what exactly it is um but that's okay. yeah a big big show um at the start of next year and then um also some R&Ds for some other work but again both of those projects have integrated access in them um and yeah um, again kind of trying to continue that learning journey and and keep pushing the boundaries of what's possible in terms of audio description in terms of BSL um captioning so yeah those are that's that's on the horizon Okay, that's a bit secret squirrel. But... <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> we'll just have to keep our eye on on Lee's Playhouse and and uh, and what you're up to. Yeah, and I think alongside that, because one of my roles at the Playhouse as associate director is is obviously not just directing plays, but um, one of the things I head up is our furnace um activity, our furnace program, which is everything we do in terms of artistic development. And so a big part of that is also about how do we support artists. Um, at various stages of their career so there's some really exciting projects that we've got on the horizon to particularly support deaf and disabled artists there's a big project that we're going to be doing with ramps on the moon and sheffield crucible um, in partnership with them which is a kind of um, three introduction to courses one for writers one for directors one for producers all aimed at deaf and disabled very early career artists um, so that's going to be kind of um, in the new year um, and there's some other projects we've got that are kind of very much focused in terms of supporting deaf and disabled artists so because you know I think when going back to your kind of the that question about the ideal of the future the ideal is also that productions like Oliver Twist in the future are directed by deaf and disabled people you know and so how we support those artists to work on that massive scale and and kind of you know with all the experience and skills that that requires how do we make sure that in the future the people we're commissioning to adapt the Oliver Twist of the future and directly Oliver Twist of the future and also deaf and disabled themselves so um Mm that feels really important as well and that's a big part of my remit at the playhouse and I, I think it's just worth mentioning that ramps on the moon is a project that is made up of a consortium of theatres of which yeah. this playhouse is one and we, yeah. we talked about the ramps on the moon project a bit more in an earlier episode episode five mm. um where i spoke to Sarah Holmes, who um, is chief exec of the New Woolsey Theatre, who was a founder member of Ramps on the Moon. Yeah. And the the Ramps on the Moon project mission is through the creation of these integrated um, accessible performances uh, is to normalise the presence of deaf and disabled people. Yeah on yeah. and off the stage so Oliver Twist is one of the the productions that has kind of come out of that Ramps yes. on the Moon project isn't it? That's correct. Yeah. 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 And sadly, Oliver Twist had to close early in its run because of COVID. And uh, you, you touched on it earlier, but you've decided to to make it available online. So can you yeah. just tell us about that and how yeah. people listening to this podcast can see this how amazing what? show? So um, what we were able to do, which is amazing, is to bring the company back together 
re-rehearse the show, uh, re-tech it and put it into the theatre and then film the whole thing. So it's actually, we've not done live performances this time around, but we've created a film of it instead. So it's very much a film of the theatre production, but it's been beautifully created by um, 104 Films, um, who we've worked with, um, and Arc Media. Um, and we've worked with them to kind of film it from lots of many different angles and to edit together a film of, of the show. And it looks fantastic. It's It went um, live last week. It's available for a month and you can get tickets via the Leeds Playhouse website and um, it's called Olive Twist at Home um, and you can watch it at home and, and as with the stage show it's got captions embedded within the piece so that it's not kind of separate thing that you have to click through for those um, yeah. and of course you know we've been very careful with the sound kind of capturing to make sure all the audio description is there so yeah it's there to watch and it's available till i think the 20th of november um so yeah i hope people enjoy it if they get a chance to have a look great and and of course it is in some respects even more accessible because it's available online because yeah so, you know so many many people disabled and not disabled are a bit anxious about kind of perhaps going into a, a yeah. crowded theater so being able to get this online is a bonus really isn't it um, absolutely and, yeah thank you thank you so much for your time today Amy I know how busy you are it's been a pleasure to speak to you very best of luck with Oliver Twist on until the 20th it's a terrific piece of theatre so I really urge listeners to go and check it out thanks Amy thank you my second guest today is Benjamin Wilson Ben is a blind actor director theatre maker and audio description consultant. For the past four and a half years, he's been the Ramps on the Moon agent for change at Sheffield Theatres. Ben co-founded award-winning theatre company Brickwall Ensemble and creative audio description company Hear the Picture. His work with Brickwall includes creating and playing the lead roles in productions, such as their bold reimagining of Henry V and audio drama Mike on the Mic. He's also used his experience as a blind theatre maker to act as audio description consultant on a number of shows, including Road and Oliver Twist at Leeds Playhouse. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today, Ben. No, thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. So, Ben, you were the audio description consultant on Oliver Twist. Can you tell me what that role involved? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so I, like said, I, I fulfilled two roles on Oliver Twist. I was in the cast playing Mr. Bumblebore, so one of the two audio description consultants, along with my colleague Chloe Clark. And that was essentially is is leading on and working closely with our director, Amy Leach, to ensure that the show is not just as accessible as possible to blind and visually impaired audiences, but also as entertaining and engaging. That's the that's the thing that I think sometimes access forgets. You know, we've put a lot of effort into making sure that people can understand what's going on and forget to try and uh, engage them and entertain them and tell the story to them in as exciting and enjoyable way as possible. So yeah, I was sort of in the rehearsal room every day in two capacities. One, you know, trying to work out what I was doing as an actor, but also yeah, supporting everyone in going over every moment in the show and making sure it was it had integrated audio description this sort of the aural side of the storytelling was was interesting and engaging and exciting and enjoyable and and as welcoming to everyone as possible yes yeah, so i'm really interested to know a bit more about what's good audio description and what's poor audio description you kind of hinted that sometimes it's it's not always great so can you just tell me a bit more about that yeah, absolutely. And I think that's actually a really interesting question because I really like that question because it's it, the idea of it being subjective and there are there can be good, there can be bad, and it's going to be, and everyone's going to have different opinions and, and different thoughts. Like, 
every other you know artistic endeavor that we that we set out to achieve you know everyone's gonna the, the joy of doing it is that it's subjective and people are going to love certain bits and other people will dislike it and everyone's got their own opinion but so often access and audio description specifically isn't treated as an artistic skill set an artistic art form it's treated as a you know an access you know a provision or you know which are bolted on afterthought and not given any and not treated as if it's you know a creative element to the show and so it isn't thought of in those terms of being you know being assessed artistically and i suppose mm-hmm. that would be my my personal thought so often when i go to the theater and listen to audio description you know the audio describer has worked very hard to create a, a really effective audio description that really does the job of filling in the um the visual gaps that i'm missing and that's wonderful and really essential and really important but it's also really clear that despite all the audio describers hard work no one from the production itself has given any creative thought to how they want the audio description to work you know the the director the the writer the the, the cast the producer the, you know none, none of those people have have taken any you know time or effort to make any artistic or creative choices about the audio description and so that element of the show feels separate and different and not part of the world and not part of the artistic vision of the show and there's very few other elements of this it's, it's never really quite made sense to me that you know as a as someone who has you know, has worked as a director why would you ignore one of the elements of your show you know a, a chunk of your audience their entire experience of the world of your show is being defined by this one element and you're not even going to engage with it or have a conversation with the person who's going to do it. You, know, you wouldn't do that with any other part of your show. You wouldn't say to the, to the lighting designer, yeah, do whatever you want. I'll just see you on press night for a drink. You, know, you, you, wouldn't, you, you, you wouldn't do that. And so the message that says to me as a, a blind audience member who requires that audio description is that you don't care as much about my experience of the show as the sighted audience members experience of the show. If, if you're directing a show and not, engaging with the audio description not thinking about your blind and visually impaired audience then you're telling us that we don't matter as much to you as as everyone else so that would Mm. be i think a long long rumbling way of answering that question is that for me good exciting audio description is when it feels like and it's obvious that everyone in the show is taking responsibility and taking charge of what the experience is for a for a blind and visually impaired audience member as they do for a sighted, hearing, non-disabled audience. And just to go back to to basics, you know, give me a, give me a kind of audio description one hundred and one. It's sure. it's somebody that is describing the action on the stage, and and so, often through some headsets. Is that right? Yeah, traditionally, yeah, that would be the traditional. You know, uh, you know, the way that audio description happens ninety nine times out of a hundred is that you arrive at the theatre, you're given a headset, and uh, from personal experience, the most uncomfortable and painful headset to wear in the world. (laughs) I would love that. I would love some work to be done to make those uh, more comfortable and uh, and a pleasant experience to wear and use. Uh, And yeah, and then there'll be someone hidden away at the back of the theatre somewhere, maybe in a little booth or up on the, in the the tech area or whatever, and they will be speaking into a microphone that is broadcast to your headset. And before the show, they will describe the set and the co- and the props and the costume and the actors, give you a little inter- introduction to uh, what things look like, and maybe set up some of the uh, visual elements of the show. And then during the show, they will chip in when they in, in, try and time it so that in the silences between dialogue, they will describe the action. So yeah, so that is the sort of traditional way of audio description, but. 
Uh, I am very passionate about challenging that traditional normal way of doing things. And I, I would suggest that there are better ways of approaching it and more interesting and artistic and creative and better ways of providing a high quality experience for a visually impaired audience than that very traditional, very simple, easy. There are more interesting, exciting ways to approach it. But yeah, that's how traditional works. And so presumably you did something more exciting and interesting and creative with Oliver Twist. Can you explain how that worked? Sure. Yeah. So I suppose the, there are there are several different ways of doing more creative audio description. And um, on Oliver Twist specifically, the choice we made was to get rid of those headsets, to get rid of the headsets so that no one had to, there wasn't an, ex, an added extra layer of audio description that only the blind and visually impaired people were hearing through those headsets. We got rid of that. And so everyone was just experiencing the same show. Everyone was getting the same show. And so we... You know, which we'd refer to that as integrated audio descriptions, integrating it into the show. And yeah. so, how we, we there were several tactics and ways of going about that that we used in on Oliver Twist. So, there are moments where you can try and integrate it into the text so that it makes sense hourly as well as it does visually. So, an example I would use is if you've got a scene where someone is shooting another character. Say, me and you are doing a scene right now, and the scene is that you're going to point a gun at me and shoot me. Yeah. You know, if that was the scene, the visual moment, I, I hear a bang of a gun. I hear maybe hear some screams, but I have absolutely no idea who shot who, who's done what, what's happening. But yeah. if you said to me, Ben, if you don't shut up, I'm going to shoot you, and uh, and then I don't shut up, and then I hear the bang, and then I, I specifically hear that character in pain, and someone else goes, "Oh no, Ben's been shot." You've right. integrated it into the text to know it makes sense. You know, that was very bad writing. Obviously, a, a more talented writer <laughs> could have written it more, in a more interesting way than that. But yeah, that you, you can you know they they make sense hourly into the text. It's been integrated into the text so that it works hourly as well as it does visually in the way that you, we are all used to hearing radio plays, for example. But then yeah. there are other ways. That's that's one tactic. But then there are moments where the cast on stage can perform what we would think of as more traditional audio description. In in Oliver Twist, we had the us who were the sort of the chorus, almost like narrator characters at times who. Um, so those characters can take charge of audio describing a particular visual sequence. There's a sequence in the in Oliver Twist where Oliver walks to London, which is a beautifully performed bit of visual vernacular of VV by a, our wonderful deaf actor Brooklyn, who played played Oliver. And they are doing this wonderful visual sequence of telling us the story visually of Oliver's journey to London. And obviously that is inaccessible to, to blind audiences. So the us then are replicating that journey, telling replicating that story through a more a very poetic, beautifully written bit of uh, bit of narration slash audio description that the, the, yeah, that fits seamlessly with that that visual sequence. So there it's that's that's a really good example of the story being really engaging visually and really engaging hourly, so that if you can engage with both of those elements, great. If you can only engage with one, great, because it's just as it works just as well on both of those levels. So it's it's, it's a treat for all the senses. So that if one of those senses isn't, you know, you, you aren't using one of those senses, then it doesn't matter because you've got the others are being treated and spoiled and, and and told the story. And then there's also the added element then of of sound design and music as well to really. Mm. make it a pleasure to listen to and really engaging and add an extra layer of, of, of gorgeousness. We had a great composer, Oliver Vibrans, and great sound designer, John Biddle, working on Oliver Twist, and both of them did a brilliant job of making it a real treat to listen to the show and make it a really enjoyable, engaging experience. But then there are other moments when you can 
try and be more prescriptive? And can we tell the story, the visual story through music, through sound design? Can yeah. we use sound effects and noise and and music and all of those things to tell the story that's happening visually and replicate that story hourly? Amy described what a powerful learning experience it was for her to direct that show. How much of a of a learning curve was it for you? Definitely. I, I think whenever you're tackling a piece of theatre of that scale, of a you know, big you know, big stage, big cast, big company, big, you know, beautiful design, whenever you I think there's always challenges to overcome. And when you're engaging with creative access as well, when you throw those elements into the mix, there are other more exciting creative elements to, to to wrestle with. There are always going to be challenges and new things to discover and new ideas to play with. And with that, you know, some exciting learning will come. And definitely on Oliver Twist, the fact that we were really, we weren't having audio description hidden away on headsets and we weren't having BSL interpretations sort of separated off over on the side of the stage or anything like that. The fact that we were trying to make this really gorgeous, engaging, multi-layered story that worked on all those different layers for all these different audiences. There were definitely, for me, you know, the chance to work with brilliant deaf artists and, uh, and actors and creatives who were taking charge and, and leading us through the the experience of making it accessible for, for for deaf audiences is always a pleasure and always a joy and really and, and same with our the learning disabled member of the cast and, and working with that working with them to make sure that the process was accessible for them and i've just i really really enjoyed learning and engaging with all those different access elements to make sure that this show worked for everyone and was a really warm welcome experience for everyone and likewise being given the opportunity to to chip in and lead on the uh the blind and visually impaired elements uh, of the access is is mm. was a pleasure as well, and how those elements, when they feed together and work seamlessly together and really support each other, and then when occasionally those elements uh, but clash slightly, and if you've made a beautiful scene that is entirely performed in BSL and silent and is brilliant and really accessible to deaf audiences, right now, how do we make that that scene also accessible to blind and visually impaired audiences? That that can be. A bit of a challenge, but I really, it was what was so inspiring about working on Oliver Twist was that everyone was really passionate and engaged and excited about taking responsibility and taking charge. We didn't think of it as, oh no, we've got this awkward problem to solve of making it accessible. We've got no, it was we've got this exciting, amazing, engaging, artistic challenge of making this brilliant, wonderful show that works for everyone. Yes, and Amy also spoke with passion about the team at Oliver Twist. And did you feel at the time that there was a sense of something really special happening i think so yeah i think so i mean it is for me personally in my career i've so often been i've been the token disabled person in the room you know trying to make change or trying to or trying to or just just because that's you know the the lack of diversity in our industry you know it's it's mm. you are just the only one who's who, who who's there in the room so often and it's it, it's always a special experience when you can be in a a group of people be part of a community that there's a, there's a line that on, on in the uh, the in the front page of the Oliver Twist script that Brian Lavery wrote for us that it's in this a stage direction that says that everyone in the in the us everyone in the in the or in the company takes responsibility for telling the story to everyone to um, interpreting describing you're telling the story on all these different levels and um i think also that spread out into the culture of us as a company as well as a as a, a cast and creative team and and crew in that we really did whether it was we were in a in the rehearsal room 
uh, or on the stage, we or we were, you know, in the pub over the road, whatever it might be. As a as a as a group of colleagues and friends, we really took responsibility. There was a real culture of supporting each other and taking responsibility for each other's access and each other's experience, and it became a real, yeah, such a warm, supportive environment to work in. That it's just such such a thrill and such a joy, and it's sort of reinvigorated me to be like, I need to find more spaces and more people and places like that and more more rehearsal rooms and processes that are as warm and welcoming and accessible as that one but also it's like it also brings into sharp focus the other parts of of the industry and the other parts of our working lives that aren't that and and remind us that we shouldn't have to put up with all that all other nonsense yeah i mean you've been working in theater for many years haven't you and uh, i'm interested to know what what are the kinds of barriers that you've regularly come across the biggest challenge is engaging people, getting them to acknowledge the barriers and acknowledge that things are slightly tricky and slightly difficult and 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 all that sort of thing. And once they're aware, been made aware and have had their eyes open to this stuff, it's like, oh yeah, of course, let's crack on and start working and, uh, and make these changes happen. But I think sometimes the biggest challenge is that first one, that first hurdle of getting people engaged and getting people to acknowledge that, that um, yeah that things need to change and that the current world isn't as uh, is it, it has its problems that need that need changing and as soon as people in my experience often most people as soon as they're made aware of the barriers and the and the challenges and the and the things that aren't aren't ideal at the moment as soon as that they are more than happy to engage and and work hard to to make those changes happen it's just yeah it's that first hurdle getting people engaged and in the in the conversation and in the room and and all that sort of stuff Mm. that's the one that's often the biggest the biggest one i'm always interested in language how it's used and and the power it it can wield and i think people are sometimes unsure about what language to use when talking about disability and inclusion and i think that that what you were just saying about the the first hurdle is getting people engaged so and if language is or a nervousness about language is is a kind of barrier to that initial engagement how how do you think we can get over that yeah you're absolutely right because language is a very important thing you know we work in we work in the arts we work in theater we we passionately believe in the power of words and the power of stories and the power of power of language and all that and all that sort of thing and you know and it also can be a very personal thing you know i know from my own experience that when i first lost my sight at first i didn't really understand the world of of disability the world of disabled politics the world of uh you know, the world of disabled narratives and that sort of thing in the disabled community i, I didn't I, I didn't really get it and i felt uncomfortable about oh do i want to describe myself as being disabled what am i what am i describing myself as that because i was very mm-hmm. much stuck in the world of what we think of as the medical model of disability where that would that definition of disability defines disabled people as you know there's there's something medically different about them that means their their life is is more difficult. So I, you know, if I was thinking about disability in those terms, I was like, I know I don't want to think of myself as being less or broken or because that's not how I feel. That's not who I am. But then as mm. soon as I learn about the social model of disability, which says that disabled people, we're not disabled by our bodies, but by our environment and by society. So as a blind person, I'm not disabled because I can't see. I'm disabled because the world is built on the assumption that everyone can see. Yeah. And uh, and therefore that disabled, the disabled or that disables us as blind and visually impaired people and makes our life more challenging. And as soon as I learned about that, I was like, yeah, I'm more, and now I'm really proud to wear that badge of, yeah, I am a disabled person because when I say that now, that feels like I'm saying to the world, you are disabling me. 
you are making my life more difficult. You are discriminating against me. And that feels like a really cool punk rock revolutionary thing to say, <laughs> a really great badge to wear with pride that, yeah, I am a disabled person. I wear that. I now wear that badge with pride. But yeah, so to answer your question, yeah, I think it's it can be a personal thing, but also the worst thing that anyone could ever do, in my opinion, and this happens all the time in the industry, is doing nothing because they're scared of getting it wrong. And yeah. I think that is such a common thing when it comes to tackling access and talking about disability and uh, and accessibility and, and inclusion and diversity more broadly is that people are so scared of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing that we'll just do nothing. And that means that nothing changes. Everything stays the same. We stay excluded. We stay, uh, you know, not allowed into, into the, the, the avenues of power in this industry and in all the corners of society. And I, I, would, I would say to people, don't be scared of, of getting that wrong. Be open and honest with people and ask people and have conversations. As a disabled person, as a blind person, I have never once been offended by someone asking me, oh, what language is, is the most appropriate to use? How would you like to be described? How do you describe yourself? I have never, ever been offended by someone asking those questions in a, in a professional right. context. Yeah. And so having, I, I am offended if people presume and make assumptions on my behalf and get it wrong. And, and if I have said, oh, I like to refer to myself as, as disabled or blind rather than you know, uh, something else. And then they continue to uh, get it wrong. I'm, I'm offended if they've asked me and engaged me and listened to me and then ignored me. I'm yeah. offended if people, I don't know, put me in a box that I, that without consulting me, but I'm, I've never ever been offended by being engaged and people having the conversation. So I say, if you are worried about getting things wrong or getting language wrong, engage with people, have conversations with people, ask them what yeah. language should I be using? What language do you prefer to, uh, to associate with and and and, uh, and use and, and actually the, we don't always have the answers as well like as a I, I sort of rotate around using blind and visually impaired and partially sighted i i use all of those terms at different times depending on the context and I, i've not quite settled on one which of those terms is I, I best prefer for myself i know that i prefer being referred to being disabled rather than having a disability i don't like to think of myself as having a disability because that feels very medical model of disability rather than I'm disabled, I'm being disabled by society in the in the mm. social model sense. But yeah. And again, I would also, that's what I prefer. I'd also say if I'm sure there are other disabled people out there who completely disagree with me and are happy to say that they have a disability and that's that's also great. That's fine. I'm never going to be a disabled person that says, actually, you're getting it wrong. You're describing yourself in the wrong way. That seems just stupid as well. And uh, yeah, I just think the best way of dealing with that that stuff is having open inclusive conversations with people and just chatting to people and asking them and listening to them and being led by by each person and, and that sort of thing and also there are people often worry about language you know I often talk to people who work uh, in theater maybe work front of house or work in box office or and and ask me like oh if a you know a disabled person comes into the building how should i refer to them how should i how should i say oh what language should i use to describe them and i often say they're a person first and foremost actually there are very few contexts where most contexts you don't need to use any other language with people you know you don't need to say oh this person using a wheelchair has entered the building you can just say oh we've got a person here to see you for a meeting you don't need to say oh there's a person in a wheelchair coming to see you for a meeting or there's a blind mm. person here to see you for a meeting you know first and foremost i'm yes i'm a disabled person yes i'm a blind person but first and foremost i'm ben more than anything else yeah, so including people in these conversations, but actually people worry about language more than they should, I think, sometimes when actually yeah. it's it can be important, but also it's that's the uh, the sort of the the decoration and actually what ma what matters more than the language is the the context of 
of what we're saying and the actions that we're and what we're putting into action rather than how we're talking about it. Have you found yourself siloed as a disabled actor? And if so, how much of a problem is that across the industry, do you think? I I think it's a really interesting point because there needs to be a mix, right? I think there needs to be platforms specifically for disabled voices. There needs to be the the procedures. This is a moment that we are going to proudly give a platform for disabled voices and disabled stories. And that is when that type of thing is really, really useful, can be really useful, having a specific place that is for us and for our community to to discuss our our stories and our issues can be really, really useful. But also, that if that is the only place in the industry where we are allowed, that feels wrong as well. So mm-hmm. it also needs to be more diversity in terms of uh, in terms of inclusion, in terms of mainstream programs, and that it's just we are naturally fit into and being a part of the everyday life of the industry and the everyday life of of mainstream work. That is really really important. Definitely, you know, I want to be able to. I want the as an audience member, I want the opportunity to go to the theatre and specifically see disabled stories by disabled people. But also, I want to go to the theatre and see a show, and it just happens to have a disabled actor in as part of the cast, as well as a wonderfully diverse cast in, in every other aspect and element as well. I want that. I want both of those things to be able to happen. And also specifically for me as an artist, I want, I often feel, I, you know, I, I always fight against putting, being put in a box and being pigeonholed about who I am and what I do. I'm one of those awkward people in, in the industry who wears lots of different hats and does lots of different things. And I take great pride in that. I very passionate, very, very passionate as we've discussed in this, in this conversation about, about, audio description and creative audio description and that is becoming more and more part of the work that I do and I always want that to be the case I always want doing more exciting and wonderful and artistic and engaging things with audio description to be a part of a key central part and uh, of my working life but also I feel on the other hand the, the sort of the other side of that coin is I feel very passionate and uncomfortable I feel very anxious about the industry putting me in a box of saying he's the blind guy so he can only talk about audio description that's where he's allowed to to have an influence on on the industry that feels wrong as well and i don't mm-hmm. just although i very passionately want to be want to be an industry leader when it comes to audio description and creative audio description i feel very uncomfortable about only being allowed to play with that particular tool because that's the one that specifically relates to my community you know i also feel like we as disabled people have things to say and not just about disability we are also have deserved to be artistic leaders when it comes to writing directing producing acting everything stage management whatever it might be we shouldn't just be put in the box and allowed out to play when it comes to specifically discussing disability you know we also should be allowed to discuss you know the best new work new writing and the best the, the classics and whatever else it might be we also deserve to be given a platform as actors and writers and directors and makers and producers and all of those things in our own right in, 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 as a, on a mainstream stage and a mainstream platform, regardless of you know our identity as, as disabled people. So what do you think funders and investors in the arts, particularly those that subsidise theatre, c- can do to improve access and inclusion? Mm-hmm. I think we are in this industry, we are very, very good at talking about this stuff. And yeah. we are less good at just cracking on and doing it. And all of my favorite experiences have been uh, times when people have just stopped talking about it and gone, right, let's just let's just do it. Let's just give it a go and see what happens. And, you know, I think actually I think Ramps on the Moon is a very good example of that. I think the six Ramps on the Moon theaters, you know, it's I always think Ramps on the Moon isn't six theaters in the industry saying, oh, we are really great at this stuff. 
It's not that all. It's six that are saying, we want to get better at this. This is a great way of us just doing that. We're going to, we're committing to making these shows and doing this work. And that's going to force our hand into putting our money where our mouth is and just cracking on and doing it. So I would, I would really like, and also the work that I've done with, with, with Amy Leach in the last few years, I've, I've, I've had so many conversations with directors over the years about audio description and why it needs to be better and how it needs to improve and how it needs to be creative. And so many of them smile and nod and do, mm, yeah, that's really interesting. I agree. We'll have, to, we'll have to think about that. That's really interesting. And Amy is one of the few examples of people who listened, did the smiling and nodding and going, oh, yeah, I agree. And then a week later, called me and went, right, what are we going to do about it? Let's Here's, here's a show. We're going to crack on and do something with it. And so that's what I'd like to That's the sort of people and the sort of projects I'd like to see given more, you know, given funding, given, given opportunity, given mainstream platforms, is people stopping talking about this stuff and cracking on and saying, right, we're going to give this a go. We're going to be a, set ourselves bold, ambitious targets with creative access. We're going to crack on and give mainstream platforms to disabled voices. We're not going to talk about, oh, how are we going to go? We're not going to, you know, we're going to stop talking about it and we're going to do it. We're just going to put our, yeah, put our, our words into action and make, make these things happen. I think there's, there's two sides to that. I think there's one, we need more of the best non-disabled artists in mainstream and major positions of influence to crack on and, and start working with more disabled artists and to engage more with creative access. Yeah. Uh, but also, where are the deaf and disabled voices given a mainstream platform to do that themselves? I know I, I love being able to consult on people's work and make their work more accessible, but also there needs to be a point where we stop consulting and you know stop sharing our knowledge and get to put our skills into action ourselves as well and uh see so yeah, they're the they're the they're the two things i'd like to see more of. because also we start we uh, we've spent a lot of our lives you know the, the people in positions of influence the senior management teams of major theaters and all that sort of stuff you know there are brilliant people in those roles up and down the country who are really engaged in improving those stuff but actually when do, do we get to a point when we say we need, well one we need more diversity in those groups of people where are the disabled people in those positions of power where are the you know where where are the the disabled people in with mainstream platforms to make this change happen themselves but also i'd love us to get to a point in the industry where we stop saying we need the senior management teams and the artistic directors and the chief executives and the senior producers and all these people in positions of influence in our in our buildings we need to at the moment we're at a point where we're like oh we need to support these people to get better at creative access or to get better and we need to work with them to uh, to become more engaged and, and educate them about how to get better. I want us to get to a point in the industry where we say, right, actually, this is one of the essential criteria of getting a job like that, is that you need to have a deep understanding of these issues and of whether that's from personal experience or whether being an ally from, from outside. Actually, I think we need to get to a point where one of the basic criteria of being an artistic director of a major theatre in this country is one of the skills and one of the skills you need to have is creative access and is a knowledge of the deaf and disabled, of deaf and disabled politics and deaf and disabled culture within the theater industry rather than mm -hmm. us trying to engage and educate the people in those positions of power let's put the pe people into those positions of power who are already engaged and already have those skills and that knowledge and that passion and that that drive some theater goers have traditionally been put off going to see a show that's labelled as accessible, they'll they'll pick another performance if they can. Why do you think that is? And do you think that's true? I mean, that's what I've been told by people who run theatres is, is traditionally audiences avoid a show that's labelled as accessible. 
Uh, I think there, I think, yeah, I think there is some data to back that up. I, I, I think there's two elements, two elements to that. One, I think it's, it's, uh, we need education because I think that's just purely uh, comes from a place of ignorance that you know that an accessible performance isn't for you. People might presume that oh, that performance is specifically for that group and not for me. Or mm. people might, like you said, might think that it might spoil the um, the experience for for them if it's being. BSL interpreted or captions or audio described or whatever it might be, or it's a relaxed performance or whatever it might be. And uh, it, in my experience, that is just simply not true. And so it's just we need to educate people. We need to spread the word and, and change that perception and challenge that perception. And uh, the second one is that I think, again, I think creative access is the solution to this as well. In that, actually, if uh, because you know, the boring traditional ways of doing access, you know, having an interpreter stood on the corner of the stage. In, in all black in a spotlight on the side of the stage separate from the rest of the action having a big sort of slightly ugly looking caption screen right you know on, on the set somewhere and having the sort of traditional audio description in the very dry and traditional and uncreative uh, in uncreative manner you know actually how damning is it about the provision that we provide for deaf and disabled audiences that if the, those those elements can spoil the experience for for everyone else that's if that's and yet the, the something that spoils the artistic experience of watching a show for someone is what i need to engage with the show the answer isn't to hide away the element that is spoiling the show for people because people need that element the answer is to make that element better and make it more engaging and, and enjoyable and wonderful and, and artistic and engaging i think we've put so much work and energy into in our industry into hiding away access so that it, it doesn't uh, spoil the artistic artistic experience of non-disabled audiences and why can't we use that energy to instead make that experience wonderful for everyone disabled or non-disabled deaf or hearing blind or sighted why don't we just yeah I, I, it blows my mind that people's priorities sometimes seem to be seem to be so wrong so i think there are t there are two elements is one let's educate people let's spread the word out and make people clear to people that no these elements won't spoil your experience but also let's make sure those elements are as creatively integrated into the performance as possible as artistic as possible as joyous as possible so that it is a joy for everyone and so it's just the key central part of the artistic vision of the show and also we want to get to a point in the industry where we don't just have one audio described performance one bsl interpreted performance one caption performance during the run of the show we want to get to a point where we see we're seeing more shows that has that those elements integrated into the show for every performance and so then it won't matter will it then it doesn't matter that we would that all that those all those problems disappear and go away and and also quite frankly as a disabled person um, if putting on accessible performances is putting off disabled audiences, I mean, non-disabled audiences, then, oh, boo-hoo, sorry. You know, we are excluded from 99% of all theatre and film and television and music and drama and, and, art, and arts and all of these things. And so, oh, if there's one performance during a run that's excluding you in some way, even though I don't believe that he's excluding you, that oh, might be slightly uncomfortable for you, then, oh, that must be really difficult for you. Blooming heck. No, whilst the rest of us are living that every day, every second of every day of our lives, like, come on, pull yourself together, grow a pair, and right, um, yeah. and and get on with it. It's like I I find it very hard to have any sympathy for people who <laughs> are experiencing a barrier for five minutes in their lives when those of us who face barriers all day, every day, uh, just have to shut up and, and and make do with the the sort of the, the bare minimum. And Oliver Twist is a great example of how an accessible show is a show that 
even more people can enjoy it's not it's 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 taken all those elements of of uh, making it accessible and and created a wonderful show that actually everyone can enjoy without without barriers and i think that's the thing is that is that artists once you i think my, when i lost my sight and started becoming more engaged with all these accessible stuff all of a sudden i was like why i was I had my eyes open to all these wonderful new weapons in my arsenal you know tools in my toolbox as an arsenal that i'd been ignoring previously is that like, why have i ignored all this stuff it's so exciting and from an audience point of view it's you're right with all of the twists is making a show really engaging and entertaining and enjoyable hourly doesn't just you know serve blind and visually impaired audiences it it serves every audience who can hear that making a show really engaging and vibrant and exciting visually for a deaf audience doesn't you know it also makes it a more wonderful and enjoyable experience for everyone who can see those visual elements adding these creative layers to your show isn't a a burden that 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 you know that weakens the show for for non-disabled audiences. It, is, it adds extra these extra exciting, vibrant layers that makes your show more enjoyable, more exciting, more wonderful for everyone who's experiencing it. What's not to like about that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Ben, what are you working on next? Uh, well, I've very excitedly uh, announced this week in my role. So I'm one of the central parts of my my role is as a agent for change at Sheffield Theatres. So Ramps on the Moon, agent for change at Sheffield Theatres. And uh, it's Sheffield Theatre's turn next to make the Ramps on the Moon show. So, um, I, uh, and it was announced this week that's going to be much ado about nothing, directed by uh, our artistic director Rob Hasty. So that's one of the one of the things that will be the focal point of my year next year of my twenty twenty two, supporting the building, getting ready to make that show, to make that show happen, and make sure everyone is engaged and excited and ready for the really amazing possibilities that making the Ramps on the Moon show can do. And uh, yeah, I've got some very Lots of exciting things. A couple of things that I'm, I'm working on that, you know, typically not allowed to talk about yet because we are all like to keep things secret in this industry. But yeah, continuing working as both audio description consultant on some brilliantly exciting shows, continuing work as an actor and continuing to try and develop as a director as well. They're my, they're my, my exciting plans for the next few years of my career. Well, I can't wait to see Much Ado About Nothing. When is that going to be presented it towards yeah, the end so of next be, year yeah so it's autumn 2022 it will be uh touring around all the ramps in the moon partner venues ben thank you so much for joining me today i've loved talking with you i've learned a lot oliver twists it's available online from leeds playhouse until november the 20th and and perhaps beyond that who knows it seems a shame to 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 end it there on the on the 20th it would be nice if it had a, a longer life Absolutely. That sounds wonderful to me. I I, w- I would love as many people as possible to watch that show because we're all extremely proud of it. Well, thank you again, Ben. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you very much. You too. Thank you so much for joining me in Dressing Room 3 at the New Woolsey Theatre. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and family and tell us too. You can message us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if there's something you'd like me to unwrap in a future episode, just drop me a line at podcast at woolseytheatre.co.uk. If you want to come and see a show or take part in one of our community activities, our website is the place to look, woolseytheatre.co.uk. This podcast series is for entertainment purposes, is produced and managed by our friends at podtalk.co.uk and is the copyright of the new Woolsey Theatre.